Young, a man of many hyphens, what is your most prominent word in that multi-hyphenate introduction? Because I could call you anything apart from Al. I could call you anything, but what are you? What are you? What's your thing? I am semi-retired journalist and broadcaster, Leighton Orient season ticket holder, and proud captain of the Leighton Orient over 70s, although only just qualified for that walking football team. Well, congratulations oh, yeah. slash commiserations. My mum turned a significant age, but she she still looks, in my mind, maybe your, your kids get this as well, you'll always be kind of frozen in time as somewhere, like my grandma is frozen as some kind of mid-40s, early 50s lady. I mean, do you feel over 70? No, uh, it's, um, it's extraordinary that we're still, um, I mustn't say running around because it's walking football, but it's extraordinary that... Um, at this advanced age, we're still walking around very enthusiastically. I recently played against someone from Barnet who was celebrating his 83rd birthday. Oh, wow. And it is as well as any of us. So um, we're all happy uh, just just to be going and probably overdo it all the time because we forget that we're not 40 or yeah. 45 still. Warm up, warm down, carbs. That's what you've got to do. Well, notionally, we're here to talk about West Midlands Turf Wars, the third in your Turf Wars series following uh, the London football and the Lancashire football. But we'll go hither and thither. I must give you your Football Library membership card. And I, I gather it's pertinent to you because your dad actually worked in a library for a living. He did. And that was the reason why I briefly lived in the Midlands. Um, because although he'd worked in libraries in basically North East London, Woodford, Walthamstow Way, where I was born, very early on, so early that I don't remember how old I was, but I could only be two or three, uh, he got a very good job in the library at Leamington Spa, uh, and so we moved there for five or six years, um, during which time I saw my first Midlands match at Coventry when they happened to play Walthamstow Avenue, who we supported along with Lake Norrie, uh, in the FA Cup. So that was my first Midlands match which had come only a few months after my first ever match in London at, at White Hart Lane. But we moved back to London. Uh, sadly, my mother died at a very young age. We had to come back and live with my grandparents. And um, although my first football shirt, which I've got a picture of somewhere in my study, shows a Wolverhampton Wanderers shirt, um, I think that was probably only because it was the, the only um, football shirt available in those days. They didn't seem to do replica strips, but you could probably buy a football shirt if you were lucky. Well, could um, you... But I really had no, no great affinity to any of the Midlands clubs, and it, and it was made very clear that Leighton Orient, better off or worse, was our family club. Could you buy the patch? Could you buy the Leighton Orient badge and either sew it or press it on to a red? Was it red they played in then? still wearing a blue and white scarf because everybody else had managed to find red and white scarves 
Um, I mean, a few years earlier, to answer your question, I, I went round every sports shop I could find, trying to find an actual Orient shirt, a blue and white one, where they got promoted to the top division. And there was just nothing. I ended up with this rather strange, slightly purple affair. Um, it, it really was, I think, quite late until, until clubs in particular realised that there was money to be made by um, by marketing their strips. But even the, the sportswear shops didn't seem to realise that there was much money to be made. I was even luckier to get a, a wool, an actual wolf shirt yeah. in the right colours when I was so young in the 1950s. Well, no wonder, because wolves were... The team competed in the... They're the first English team to compete in the European Cup or the first to d- deny it? They were, they were very close. They were very yeah. close. Um, and the 1950s, they won the league three times in the 1950s and the FA Cup in 1960 when they should have done the double just before Spurs did. So they were a very big club. And, of course, one of the points I make in, in the West Midlands book was the famous quote from their manager, Stan Cullis, um, before the European Cups, any of them actually started, they were one of the teams, the glamorous teams, who used to play well-known clubs from abroad. And when they beat Hornbed, the Hungarian team, who had many of the famous 1953 Hungary side, which demolished England at, at Wembley and in Budapest, when they beat them, basically by flooding the pitch, um, so they were so muddy that uh, the Hungarians, with their more skillful players, couldn't really play on it. Um, Stan Cullis ushered the pressmen into the dressing room and said, here they are, the champions of the world. And when the, uh, some of the foreign newspapers and magazines got hold of that quote, they decided that perhaps Wolves weren't the champions of the world and that these things need to be put on a slightly better footing. And that led pretty much directly to the European Cup being instigated in, in 1955. So the Super League is Wolves' fault. I'm glad we've cleared that up. Being, being slightly facetious, yes. West Midlands turf wars, a football history. Port Vale, Stoke, Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury. Wolves, Walsall, Aston Villa, West Bromwich Albion, Birmingham, Coventry, and even Burton Albion. Uh, I've just um, turned to that chapter, which is post-war. Uh, one Spanish newspaper commented caustically, Wolves, like all English teams, continue to play football that is 20 years behind the times. Well, when you started watching football in the 60s, you wouldn't have known any better, but it must have been quite amazing to go to Brisbane Road every week when you moved back down to London, especially with this Orient team that, before we forget, uh, they are discussed in Turf Wars, A History of London Football, which is in the Watford Library, not too far from where I am. And I just wanted to know which member of this Orient side you want on your football library card, because usually I give people Glanville or Hunter Davis, but you have to have an Orient-specific player so just whizzing through this chapter did you have a first favorite player yes um the first favorite player who i would maintain is late norian's greatest player and many will say laurie cunningham who of course ended up at real madrid which not many late norian players have ever done no. um and playing for england which not many late norian players have ever done but Tommy Johnston, who has the South Stand at the ground rightly named after him at the moment, uh, was the greatest goal scorer. And where I would say he slightly has it over Laurie is that he was able to achieve more for the club. Unfortunately, Laurie Cunningham, like any player whose star shines brightly at a club like Lake Norian, gets picked up by a much bigger club. And of course, joined West Brom infamously or famously as one of the three degrees, according to Ron Atkinson 
before very long. In other words, he had, he had played with the Orient. He had gone even by the time we famously reached the FA Cup semi-final in 1978. He was already at Albion. Um, and so he wasn't one. He was clearly a wonderful talent. He was obviously a talent that was not going to stay very long with the O's. Whereas Tommy Johnston had two long periods with them and became uh, far and away the club's highest goal scorer. Once, I think, but just at the time, fortunately, that I was going every week, my dad, I think his record was something like 18 goals in 11 games over Christmas and New Year. And he also was snatched away by, by a bigger club, Blackburn Rovers, who were in the same division at the time, which was a bit annoying to lose a player to a club in the same division. He really could have played in the top division and he held them to promotion. But that season, he was the highest goal scorer in the whole country and so holds the, the Orient record. Fortunately, came back and then, rather sadly, just missed out on the promotion uh, season when we got into into the first division with Liverpool. He clearly wasn't going to be first choice. He was offered a job with the reserve team, but decided he'd rather go off and, and continue playing and, and went off to Gillingham for a couple more years. But uh, I, I think a, a majority of Orient supporters, certainly older ones, would regard him as the club's greatest player, Tommy Johnston. And he is on your football library card, Steve Tung. Uh, we'll get to tongue-tied media later, but this is... Uh, I spent two hours with David Winner, a total of about four hours with Jonathan Wilson. Uh, if I were to talk to someone like Stuart Cosgrove, I'd be there the whole day. And there's a danger that I could be here the whole day with you. Fortunately, uh, we've both got things to do. I'm going to Wimbledon tonight. I'm going to Plough Lane for the first time to watch football. Oh, that's great. I'm going down the road to the valley at Charlton Athletic because I live uh, walking distance uh, despite remaining uh, true to the O's and um, Charlton having had a very good win on Saturday uh, will be facing a much tougher task against Rotherham United. Fab, who's the manager now? Haven't they just got rid of the manager? Well, yes, they've, uh, they got rid of Nigel Adkins uh, and now have a very popular caretaker duo um, in former playing heroes, Johnny Jackson, who started at Spurs and joined Charlton. And Jason Newell, who Brilliant. was uh, with the Wimbledon Connection, who, who played in the Premier League for, for several years. So very popular. Uh, my only slight worry is that, as we know, what often happens is that caretaker managers do very well. They lift the spirit. All the players start trying a bit harder. They get some good results. And the chairman uh, or whoever makes the decisions at the club thinks they can save a bit of money as well by appointing the caretakers. Um, so they get the job and then it all seems to become a lot more difficult. But um, they've had very good results uh, under these two and uh, there will be a strong temptation um, to give them the job, which would be very popular with supporters. And of course, that, that counts. If you remember, Charlton did very much the same with Chris Powell, who was a hugely popular player here. And then things went, started to go wrong and... Supporters were very upset even when he was sacked when they were bottom of the table um, by, a, by a new owner. But uh, So we remain to see what happens, but it, it would be a very popular appointment and it certainly would be a surprise if, if Johnny Jackson and, and Jason Newell as his assistant got the job. I hope so. Uh, I've always liked Johnny Jackson. I think I've seen him play. He's elegant, Scott Parkerish type player. And uh, you will know, listener, a month on, because this won't go out until December, uh, if Jackson and Newell two hometown heroes have taken over at Charlton. I'm going to watch the first round of the FA Youth Cup tie uh, between Wimbledon and Woking. But 
I haven't been to Plough Lane. I will pour through Turf Wars, a history of London football, uh, because Wimbledon, as with Charlton, and so many that there's a map on the back. Um, a brilliant map as well. Did Duncan Olner do that design? Yes, but he had to be very careful because yes. London Underground, the, the map you're talking about is based vaguely on the London Underground map with the colours of the teams replacing the actual colours of the of the underground lines, like the central line and so on. But you have to be very careful because apparently London Underground are extremely jealous of the rights to their map, yep. which, as we know, was a fantastic piece of, of graphic design when it, when it first came out. And has, of course, been added to over the years as new lines like the Victoria line came on stream. But uh, basically, you're, you're not allowed to use it as that would infringe the copyright. So you have to be very careful. But it's um, brilliant. So what we've done with Just the, the cover two, alone, sorry, never, mind the, yeah, never mind the 100,000 yeah. words in between these covers. Um, it is in the Watford Library. It's been taken out. Oh, it doesn't say how many times it's been taken out, but it was on the table, very prominently displayed. I don't know if that makes any difference, but yes, published by 2016. That is, that is normally a sign that I've been into the library because that is what I do at the, the libraries I know. Unfortunately, listeners probably won't know that every time it is taken out of Watford Library or anyone else, the author gets eight pence. Muzzle time. So thank you very much to any, any listener who may have done uh, borrowed that. I am eight pence better off thanks to you, which I'm, I'm extremely and pathetically grateful. <laughs> and these books are well, all over the country, of course, because there is... Um, London football, you've got Lancashire, a football history, and now the West Midlands. I just wanted to ask about process. Is it ever a hardship to prepare to write these books, or is it busman's holiday type? It's very much busman's holiday, otherwise um, I wouldn't do it. I mean, it, it fills up um, the days and the weeks very nicely when you're, once you suddenly realise you're, you're in many ways retired, who occasionally, especially in the the winter months wonder what you're going to do today and it's a very good way of, of filling it up but no it's all it's all been very enjoyable we been able to sort of develop the process a little bit i've got much better access since i started to the old newspaper files which um you can get online you can now, largely yeah. but also yes very good access to via the british library which has now moved uh, in between euston and, and king's cross so i go up there quite regularly and have great fun Pottering around in there, you can order virtually any, theoretically, you can order any book that's ever been published and get access to just about any newspaper that's ever been published. Um, you also feel you feel like a proper sort of student researcher um, sitting there beavering away with all these um, historians and so on. Um, so, no, it, it is, the answer to your question is it's, it's a very enjoyable process, really. I'm so glad, not just that, but even Paddy Barkley, whom I have had in the football library, I'm not going to do the accent, a standard work of high class, objective yet delightfully revealing, sheer enjoyment from first to last. You've got Philip O'Claire, who's also been into the football library. I'm only sorry it's taken me so long to get to you, Steve Tum, because you are an eminence grease, one of the elder statesmen of English football criticism, as I call it. You're not quite Glanville. Uh, but nobody is. Uh, West Midlands Turf Wars goes back, of course, to William McGregor, 1860. So when you're pouring through 19th century penny journalism, frisson of thrills, I imagine. Yes, it is. Um, what's slightly more frustrating is that, of course, when these football clubs started, they were in general such small fry that... Um, there was very little coverage even in their local paper. I mean, one of the things that you 
try to find for all these clubs is as much detail as possible about their first ever match. But um, for understandable reasons, their first ever match was almost always such a small time affair that the Birmingham Post or whoever, the Birmingham Gazette, simply didn't take any interest in it, probably didn't even know it was happening. Um, it may well have been, in, in many cases, just a, a kickabout on a, a, a local field. Um, and so that's one of the slight frustrations of it all, that club records even um, may be incomplete or may have been lost down the years. I mean, I mentioned and some of these clubs, for instance, Stoke City in, in the current volume, um, almost certainly give the wrong year until even to this day they, they give what is almost certainly the wrong year of the day the club was founded. And as a, as a result of that, they celebrated their centenary a couple of years early and so on and so forth, but they're rather reluctant to change it. I mean, even in late, the case of Leighton Orient, I, I don't like to make a big fuss of this with the club because it would upset them too much, but Leighton Orient, if you look at anything, will describe themselves as having been founded in 1881. Well, in fact, all that happened in 1881 was that there was a cricket team which eventually became a football team and changed the name to Orient. There's no no evidence whatsoever that they ever played football in 1881. So as far as I'm concerned, Orient Football Club started at least four or five years later. But uh, that's just one of the one of the slight frustrations of it all. And for those fans of arcane knowledge, Homerton Theological College, Homerton Theological College became. Leighton Orient. Uh, I've never been to Brisbane Road. I would now because you've got the axis of Kent Teague, Nigel Travis and Kenny Jacket. Um, how has the football been up until beginning of November this season? Is it very Graham Taylor 4 4 It's very Graham Taylor, very direct style Watford. And that was very much welcomed because one of the criticisms under the previous managers, although they were quite liked on a, on a on a, a, a personal basis, was that there was far too much knocking the ball around, especially at the back. The goalkeeper bowls it out to the back four, and the centre half gives it to the full back, and the full back gives it back to the centre half, and eventually it goes back to the goalkeeper and he bowls it out to the other side. I think one of the problems, it does surprise me that so many teams and players in need too think they are Manchester City or they are Barcelona and they can get away with this stuff. Um, and what has happened this season, as we were really were, were expecting, is that the goalkeeper hits the ball upfield. We have a six foot five centre forward who's very adept at uh, winning it in the air and flicks it on. And we have a couple of other runners who try to get in behind him. And the defenders knock the ball forward. And basically, it's a lot more entertaining, to be honest. Um, it's more attacking. And above all, of course, we've had better results. And that's the that's the thing. As you know, it all stands or falls by results. And one of the things about direct play for me is that if, in, in particular, if you get two teams in a match who are both playing very direct, it, it can become quite scrappy and it can look quite bad. And then we had a run where we weren't scoring many goals. And just until the last weekend before we're talking, there was a, a, a run of four or five without a win and people were saying, this is no good. When are we going to start passing the ball instead of just lumping it up to the big bloke that sent it forward? And then what happened on Saturday against um, Jeff Stelling's heart yes. ball, 
was Orient won 5 0. The two strikers who have been signed, who people have said won't score any goals at all, got four of them. A uh, lad called Aaron Brennan, who we signed from Ipswich with a very poor goal scoring record, scored a hat trick and, and laid on the two others. And so suddenly, at the time of speaking, everyone's very happy again. By the time you listen to this, who knows? But I, the thing about Kenny Jacket was that everyone at Orient, including, I have to say, the chairman and the owners, were actually very surprised to get him and delighted to get him a man of that experience who had just been around the place, had such good contacts, and apparently demonstrated at his interview that he knew an enormous amount about League Two football, which is very important for me, and and about the Orient players. It was a tremendously impressive interview. He's the first person they interviewed, and although they felt they had to go through the process of um, having a word with all the other applicants, um, they virtually had made their mind up then, so delighted to get him. And his assistant, Joe Gallon, which is a sort of name that people may not know so well, is one of those assistants who has followed him around at his various clubs. They clearly work very well together, and, and they made a great impression. I wish you luck. There could be an FA Cup run as well. Easy first round draw at home to Ebbsfleet, uh, and then Rochdale, that, Sutton. Yeah, sorry. Oh, come on. Come on, there's jinxing and there's comments. But anything can happen, as we know. Do you reckon that Kenny will have read A Little Thing Called Pride, which is one of the books that is not in the football library yet? Uh, it was written in 1982, and it's in the bibliography. Yes. It's on my bookshelves behind me, and it's one of my favourite books, uh, not just because there's obviously a lot of Orient in it, because Alex Stock was a very influential manager for Late Orient, before he went off to those other interesting places like Arsenal and Lazio and all sorts, and then Queen's Park Rangers and, and Luton. Terrific manager. But I love the um, just the title, which you mentioned there, a little thing called Pride, is this wonderful sort of light motif that runs through the whole book, which he quotes regularly. And it, it's almost, you know, his, his, uh, his defining feeling and emotion about the game, that you must be proud in everything you do and proud of your club and so on. Um, and it's a, it a great read. It was one of the um, very early football books that I read um, that, re- that really made an impression on me. Yeah, because there were hardly any. We'll get to the 70s in the second half, don't worry. But um, in the 80s, very, very few of the books that I've got in my football library are from the 80s. There's Bill Nick's book. There's a book that Terry Neal's got. There's the odd Glanville. But it took fever pitch for football to become... Uh, not a middle-class book, you know what I mean. And uh, indeed, you titled the chapter from 91 to 2000, Greed is Good. Uh, you lived through this era. You worked through this era as well. How, was it depressing watching money and foreigners, again, you know what I mean, take over English football? Well, what was depressing, perhaps slightly before that, you mentioned the 80s, um, that football was in a very bad state, of course, and especially in the late 80s after the, um, the disasters at, at, at Heysel and Hillsborough and the Bradford Fire and so on. And you almost became ashamed to be associated with football yourself. I, um, until that time, I would always, whenever people said to you, oh, what do you do at a party or somewhere when they were introduced to you, I'd say very proudly, oh, I'm a football reporter. Um, and I found myself later on, uh, whenever anybody asked the question, I would say, oh, I'm a sports reporter. I do uh, cricket and tennis and uh, a bit of a football. And it wasn't, certainly wasn't anything to be proud of. And 
you know, you can trace that very obviously. Just look at the attendance figures. And I think it was 85, 86, or possibly the season after, that hit the absolute lowest point. Yeah, well, there was a TV strike as well. No one could watch it on telly for a few months. Yes, exactly. Uh, Attendances went down to something like 16 million, having been over 40 million immediately post-war. And fortunately, and very slowly, have have climbed back up from um, the time you mentioned the 1990 World Cup. Yes, which you were at. Did you see Pete Davis skulking about with all of his access at Italia 90? Uh, this is the man who wrote All Played Out. Correct. Yes, I saw an awful lot of him. I was one of the journalists who actually knew what he was doing, knew that he was writing a book, and knew that basically anything anybody said within a year's job was likely to go in the book. So mm-hmm. I had an awful lot. I don't think I'm actually quoted at any stage in the book, which was, I was very, very happy with. Uh, because I, I was aware that, as I say, that anything you said might be uh, used in evidence against you, as it were. Others were not so fortunate. I mean, the, the complaint of many of the players, of course, was that they thought they were just having a little chat with him off the record and everything they said, some of it criticising the system that England played and so on, um, and, and indirectly criticising the manager, all of that appeared in the book. And people like Terry Butcher, for instance, were absolutely furious with it. So, yes, I, I was well aware of it. But it was, um, I've, I've often said, it was possibly um, the best six weeks of my life in the sense that I was, well, I, I loved Italy, always have done. I was working for a Sunday newspaper, which in those days very happily involved perhaps three days of genuine work a week. You probably did an interview with somebody and, and you did a preview of one of the weekend matches and then you went to a match on the Saturday. And the rest of the time, really, well, I was just swanning around Italy and having the time of my life. And not just that, with some quite brilliant company. I've spoken to Paddy Barkley, who was out there, and Mark Glanville I spoke to. Brian was um, an Italian speaker. Did you get close to Brian Glanville uh, in yes, Italian? Yes, very much. I, Good. Yeah, no, um, and long before that, I actually played for his Chelsea Casuals team oh, a couple wow. of times. Oh, I should, yeah, and, I should have assumed. Uh, so you would have played with Mark as well? Yes, that's right, right. yeah. And although he, he was never a great friend of Fowl, the magazine I was involved in, which was understandable because I um, did have a little dig at him occasionally and uh, a little unfairly occasionally. But um, fortunately, he didn't take that out on me. I was able to say, oh, not me, Gum, that was somebody else. <laughs> and we, no, we got on very well. And I'd been very sad to, um, to hear with that interview you did with Mark that, uh, that he's not been in the best of health. But um, very, uh, very pleased to hear that he was able to, to celebrate his 90th birthday recently. Yeah, and uh, the interview, thank you very much for listening. Uh, the interview is there. Um, I've done about 200 of these interviews and Glanville was one of the big ones who I wanted to get. Next year, The Glory Game by Hunter Davis turns 50. It marks the 50th season since uh, Hunt um, got all that access to Tottenham. And of course, they will. Tottenham are mentioned through these, these books. Turf Wars, it's done through the decades and club by club. And there's a very, very brilliant index at the back that just says when the clubs are mentioned. What a stroke of genius. It's so navigable and they're such brilliant books. We've got the London one, the Lancashire one and the West Midlands one, which is the new one, out on pitch, just in time for Christmas. Buy it for your villa or Shrewsbury supporting person in your life. Um, but yeah, football in London, the beginning of the 70s, as you write, Spurs win the Football League Cup, Chelsea win the Cup Winners' Cup, Arsenal win the League and Cup double. Uh, meanwhile, Orient are doing less well. 
Um, well, just won the third division, to be fair, 1970, and under Jimmy Bloomfield, and were embarking on one of their better decades, stayed in the second division for the, the whole decade, and reached the Cup semi-final. So it wasn't a bad time. That's but, why I uh, said less the, well. It's uh, factually true, but I didn't know off the top of my yes, head where yeah. they... Where they yes, less, less, well than, less well than Arsenal and Tottenham, but we, we reluctantly have come to expect that now. But the extraordinary thing about those other clubs, of course, was that within three or four years, they, they had all collapsed. Um, and that the old generation of, of managers, um, Bertie Mee at Arsenal, Bill Nicholson, Ron Greenwood at West Ham, had all disappeared. And um, the, the new kids on the block, basically, were Queen's Park Rangers under Gordon Jago, who should probably have won the league in, in 76. And there was a complete turnaround, Spurs and Chelsea... And then later West Ham, of course, all, all relegated as well. It, it was an astonishing turnaround. Nothing um, is certain. And, and uh, I should have said, Rob Steen's book, The Mavericks, does brilliantly to portray this wacky world of QPR. With It was Jerry Francis as the captain when he was very young. And yes, Jerry Mavericks. Francis. Yeah. And Stan Bowles taking over from Rodney Marsh when Rangers supporters were worried that, that they'd lost Rodney Marsh and found a who became an even more popular uh, replacement, Stan Bolt. Don Gibbons on the left wing, who was terrific. A, a really exciting attacking team who, as I say, just got picked by Liverpool to the title, which they, they really should have won themselves. And at this time, were you writing? Were you earning a living as a reporter in the mid-70s? I was, uh, I was in local radio. In fact, I was, um, I, was, I was a bit worried at one time that it was um, the rise of LBC radio that had actually brought this terrible curse onto London football because um, LBC started pretty much my first job in the autumn of 1973, mm-hmm. the first commercial radio station or independent radio station, as they like to call themselves, um, just before Capital Radio in London and then various independent stations in all the big cities slowly came on air in Liverpool and Manchester and so on. And so LBC also ran independent radio news with almost identical staff, uh, which supplied information, news news bulletins to all the other local stations so that um, I was able, as well as covering the London clubs, I was able to, when I covered England, uh, to go abroad with them and those reports would go out on, on all the other local stations. So it was a great time for me. And one of the great things about London, of course, having at that time probably 11 if not 12 professional clubs was there was always something happening there was always team a couple of teams near the top of the league and a couple of teams near the bottom of their league and a team who were about to sack their manager and a team who just appointed their new manager I actually um, because it was really my job to go around all those London clubs and keep in touch with them and, and the managers and so on I, I actually started counting at one stage how many uh, London managers I'd worked with and, and once it got into three figures I I thought I'd better stop. Yeah, do so. You'd run out of fingers. It's becoming a bit depressing. Yeah, you'd have to knuckle up up your fingers, gosh. Uh, and we'll talk more about what Steve Tong was doing then and now uh, in the second half. 